The following program was recorded November 24, 2010. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Welcome to the best live medical radio show on the planet. That is right. And today, we're getting schooled about what's next in continuing medical education for physicians. Clinical practice is changing with the rise of new gadgets, cell phones, and social media. And our guest today thinks that education needs to change to keep up with us. He's Frank Britt, president and CEO of medical education provider PrimeMed. We'll be talking with Mr. Britt about their latest initiative called PrimeMed Open Network and see what it brings to the table. And later in the show, we're going to talk about medical jargon. Do you talk up or down to your patients? And are there any terms that have absolutely no place being said in front of the patients? Like, <laughs> yes, you're dead. <laughs> don't say that in front of you the patients. You probably don't want to go there. And uh, idiopathic when you could just say, I have absolutely no freaking clue where that came from. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, Matt, on today's show. We're also going to bring back some neglected medical terms that nobody's used for so long, we don't even know how to pronounce them. They're disappearing from dictionaries altogether, so stick around and learn some new terms. Call in at 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Or email us at sol at reachmd.com. You can also tweet us at hand reach md or leave a shout out on facebook but first let's hit the medical headlines it's probably not news to anybody that the nights are starting to get longer really <laughs> <Way> longer <laughs> here in chicago it starts getting dark at about 4 30 which for most of us basically means so long mr sun at least for the next few months that's uh, really good for vampires but very depressing for me oh absolutely is luckily you are a vampire and now we're learning it may also be unhealthy in general that's according to research published recently in the British Medical Journal by Dr. Mayer Hillman. He's a senior fellow emeritus at the Policy Studies Institute at the University of Westminster in London. He argues the UK should stop setting the clock back in the fall, but still set clocks ahead an hour in the spring. Now, that would put them one hour ahead of Greenwich Mean Time in the winter and two hours ahead in the summer, which translates into about 300 more hours of waking daylight they per year. They just don't want to change Big Ben. It's too big and hard to change that clock. Okay. <laughs> Actually, more daylight sounds better to most of us, but there's also evidence, Matt, that people are more energetic, in a better mood. I am, and less likely to get sick during the longer, brighter summer days. And people are more likely to exercise when it's light out. And I don't like to go running when it's dark. And this includes children and older people, both of whom tend to stay indoors when it gets dark outside. Plus, we get more vitamin D when it's light out. And we're only starting to understand how important that is. And mm -hmm. when it's light out, people get more sunburns. And that is more work for dermatologists like me. <laughs> I like that. Even in super cloudy, snowy weather. Right. Well, there's another interesting way to look at it, though. I mean, currently... Only one or two of our waking hours in the mornings are spent in darkness, whereas nearly half of the 10 to 11 waking hours after midday are in darkness. So keeping the clock as is would give us that extra hour of light in the early evening, but it would still take away the early morning sunrise. So I guess it really comes down to whether you're a morning person or a night bird then. And I say that keeping the sun out past four in the dead of winter definitely has my vote. What if you're neither? What if you're just lazy all the time? All the time, and yeah. A bunch of researchers in the U.S. agree with you, Matt. They've called this proposal for not changing the clocks an accessible, low-cost, and safe intervention for the good of public health. Something to keep an eye out for the next years, but how will I know when to put 
with the batteries in my smoke detectors. <laughs> I just say keep the sun right. out beyond four. That's well, my thing. all right. On to the next headline. It may be time to take prescription compliance to the next level in practice. Researchers are unveiling a drug formulation that tattles on you and you don't take it. Novartis is pushing a pill containing an ingestible microchip that can let doctors know whether or not patients have taken their medicine. The pill is being submitted for FDA approval now. Now, here are some details. When the patient swallows one of these pills... Oop. Stomach acid activates. Can you do stomach acid? <laughs> activates the chip and sends confirmatory information to a small patch worn on the patient's arm. This info then transmits to the doctor's computer or smartphone. No steady confirmations, no steady compliance, or at least I guess that's the idea. But the technology will initially be utilized in an immune suppressant drug for transplant patients, where medication adherence is obviously a very high stakes issue. And if there's ever a situation where you'd want a quick alert on compliance issues, that would probably be wow, it. Wow, scary. My medicine knows more than I do. Well, f- <laughs> future <laughs> hopes for these super pills with data chips include the ability to glean information like heart rate or physical movements over a consistent time span in order to let doctors know if drug regimens are working as they should. So think of that application like a pedometer on drugs, literally. It's like little mm-hmm. brothers watching you from the inside. Well put. And keep in mind here that Novartis is a Swiss company and will likely try first for regulation in Europe sometime in the next year and a half. How about chocolate pills from Switzerland? Um, Well, that's way better in my mouth, I'll tell you right now. Since they're working with drugs that are already approved and already on the market, it's expected that they won't have to do another whole barrage of clinical trials, but rather just ensure that microchip drugs are safe and don't impede drug efficacy. Safety is going to be a larger question here beyond Mm -hmm. side effects, Matt, namely information security. Will the medical information from these patients be secure enough to transmit wirelessly? It's something to keep in mind. Yeah, and this is not FDA approved, everybody. Don't go to the drugstore and ask for the microchip pills. You're going to start in (laughs) Europe, probably Paris, the center of the world. (laughs) True that, true that. And in other technology news, a report came out last week that cardiac patients who were telemonitored by daily follow-up phone calls were not helped as much as researchers thought they would be. Yeah, in this case, heart failure patients just out of the hospital were supposed to call their doctor daily to report their weight and any symptoms. I wouldn't call my doctor with my weight. The hope was to catch relapses earlier and thereby improve care coordination to save lives. And this was a six-month trial with over 1,600 patients conducted at Yale. Patients called in and communicated with an automated system. And let's repeat, that was an automated system, since that may have made a difference here. It's like talking to my GPS about my health. Which you do. I do. Um, And that's right, because (laughs) in previous studies of telemonitoring, which did show reduced hospital readmissions and fewer heart attacks and deaths, patients talked to a live patient coordinator. And one problem they found in this study was that many patients simply didn't call, 14% in total. And 26 weeks into the study, about half were only calling three times a week. So basically... They saw a trend similar to medication adherence issues that we just talked about earlier. Okay. And for our last headline today, the magazine Scientific American and some medical blogs have been buzzing lately about music composer Alexandra Pajak, who's translated HIV into music with an album called The Sounds of HIV. I bought it. It's awesome. Specifically, what she's done is created a direct musical translation for the genetic code of HIV. She matched nucleotides in the virus's DNA to corresponding notes, so A for adenine, C for cytosine. G for guanine, and then a D to stand for thiamine or uracil, so as to create perfect fifths musically. She also assigned notes to the amino acids of HIV proteins based on their affinity for water and layered them on a minor (laughs) scale to acknowledge the profound sadness the virus causes. The result is a 52-minute musical adaptation of HIV with over 9,000 nucleotides played in sequence or layered. Each track is named for a different protein, and they're beautiful. I've listened to it. Here it is. 
Yeah, it's, this is like listening I, I, I to HIV. S- <laughs> I can see a ballet. It's just stunning. And sad. And I like the fact that she put it in a minor key, I have to say. I really definitely like that she did that so that we could hear the profound sadness as she put it. You know, it is a very sad subject, obviously. And it wouldn't be something that you'd want just like to sound like a some sort of major keyed march. It's stunning music. It's worth listening to. It really is. Yeah, I'm impressed. Well, why don't we move on to our interview today? Our guest is Frank Britt, president and CEO of PrimeMed, a continuing medical education provider. We'll be talking about the changing face of CME. It used to be that getting credits meant going to a conference at a convention center somewhere, but now CME is changing with the times and the technology. Namely, it's starting to come to us. PrimeMed has launched a new open network initiative in the service of a new kind of CME, and Mr. Britt joins us to explain what that's all about. Mr. Britt, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Uh, thank you very much. Hi. Let's start with a brief overview of where PrimeMed's coming from with this initiative and, and really explain to our listeners what you mean by an open network, because I'm confused. I'd be happy to do that, and thanks for the opportunity to uh, to share our story. I think you folks are aware that we are a a major player in the continuing medical education space and what we describe as professional uh, professional medical information because it doesn't just include CME-related content. We've obviously been an active participant for the last 15 years, and we've reached a conclusion that uh, the time has come, the tipping point has arrived, the inflection point is here for us to think a little bit differently, not just as an organization but as an industry, about how a professional medical education is going to work in the future given a variety of changes and in practice of medicine, the way clinicians learn, uh, the way industries operate, and so forth. So we kicked off this initiative, which we're calling the uh, PrimeMed Open Initiative. The term open is uh, really a signal, uh, much like open trends in government and open trends in other industries, that uh, the time has come for a, uh, a flatter world, um, a bigger platform for more diverse uh, constituents to play a role and help them to think about and ultimately uh, teach and empower clinicians for the 21st century. Now, this sounds a lot like being patterned directly after the global open source projects we hear a lot about in the tech industry. And what comes to mind first is Linux and their operating system as the most prominent example. Do you think that this initiative's adoption and success for CME and medical education will be tied to how the broader open source campaign fares over the next few years? Uh, That's an insightful question. I I think that every industry has its unique uh, aspects to how it works and why it works best. But I do think we uh, as an industry, need to recognize there are best practices in other sectors, and I think you've cited a good one. The Linux initiative, uh, which is an interesting initiative because if you think about some of the most competitive industries in the world, technology with the IBMs and the Suns and uh, the Oracles and the Microsofts is certainly amongst the most competitive, and yet they have found common ground. They have found common interest in thinking about a roadmap for their future together with all the inherent competitive dynamics that will still exist. And so we take that same principle to bear and say, well, there are clearly some proprietary aspects of the future of medical education that both profit and nonprofit organizations will continue to hold on to. There is more that we can share as an industry that will help advance our industry. And if we don't do that, I think it's important, if we don't do that, I think our industry uh, will become less relevant. If we come together in appropriate ways and think together about how uh, education needs to evolve, both the formats, the content, uh, the way people consume information, uh, we think we can strengthen the industry and make it even uh, more contemporary and more relevant for uh, the practicing clinicians that will be needing medical education over their 
30-year career. It's interesting that you phrase it that way, too, because obviously when we're looking at open source campaigns globally, there's a lot of money riding on that in terms of the tech companies invested. And I like the way you phrased it when you said, you know, we really need to move in this direction, because it sounds like to me, you're saying that it's a bigger gamble just sticking with traditional education formats. Is that right? Absolutely. I think that um, if we as an industry continue to uh, argue that status quo is sufficient, uh, we will be left behind, and and perhaps more importantly than our individual organizations, you know, we have a responsibility to provide a platform for clinicians to learn over the uh, the full duration of their uh, professional careers. And there's been no time in history where the needs of clinicians are evolving at a rapid, more rapid pace, and the complexities of patient care have only gotten greater. And so we think it's imperative for healthcare in general to make sure that the practicing clinicians of the 21st century are uh, more competent relative to past practice, they, their understanding of adherence to guidelines is, is stronger, and that their confidence is improved. And we also recognize that the way medicine is being practiced in a more team-based model will also play an important role. So we just think there's a convergence of trends that are both technology, society, medicine, and like that uh, together argue for a, a different way to think about the future. Well, Frank, Matt's a young guy. I'm a dinosaur. And <laughs> so for me, isn't there a basic drive for us to come together physically now and then and like big events in person, like a yeah. special club? I mean, we're talking about, if I have you correctly here, more stuff online, more virtual stuff. But how about the idea of just getting together and being in a big room face-to-face? Well, uh, you know, there are... Uh, there are stakeholders in our industry that propagate the view that says that uh, live events are, are a thing of the past and the world's going digital. And uh, I, I think, as I like to say, the rumor of our, our demise is greatly exaggerated. The reality is that uh, our attendance at our events uh, remains very strong. We've had 45% of all primary care physicians in the United States prime at event in the last two and a half years. And those are the live events. But we do believe that live events need to evolve. They need to uh, be more interactive. They need to be more stuff. And very critically, they need to be linked to a range of digital activities, whether it be traditional online activities, mobile activities, digital gaming. And so we view uh, the future of, of professional medical education as basically being personalized. And you will basically empower the uh, the physician to get uh, education when they want it, how they want it, and where they want it. And that will include live events. Uh, but it will certainly include a variety of other digital settings as well. So in other words, I can take my laptop to Hawaii. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. We're talking with Frank Britt, President and CEO of PrimeMed, about the future of CME. If you have questions or comments, call 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Or email us at sol at reachmd.com. You can also tweet us or handle ReachMD or find us on Facebook. Mr. Britt, we're going to take some questions. But first, before we do that, why don't you help us get into the brass tacks of it a little bit? we got three main players that you're talking about for open source education. we got online mobile platforms, virtual learning environments, social media. Take us through a little bit as to how those would uh, theoretically or realistically be integrated into your model. Well, we think that this open platform actually involves rethinking, um, as you note, uh, some very fundamental aspects of our, how our industry operates. First of all, on the content side, there's this historical notion that uh, you know, most of the expertise in the world in medicine reside in a handful of zip codes, and we don't subscribe to that notion. We think that the world is flatter, the world is smaller, 
uh, content sources will be more heterogeneous. And so there's a whole set of questions of how will those more diverse content sources uh, be brought to bear in the future. In the second area, which is formats, as we call it, educational formats, which you just mentioned, uh, we see a proliferation of that. We know, for example, that uh, the third fastest growing uh, sector of iPad, adopt- iPad adoption is healthcare. And so we see a range of interactive tools emerging that will change the way learners learn. Uh, for example, we've piloted a successful program. We have over 20,000 users using clinical gaming, where clinicians actually compete amongst other clinicians take uh, academically rigorous courses online and compete in a, in a game-like setting. And um, people say docs don't play games. Well, i got news for you. They're, they're ordinary consumers like the rest of us, and they have a need to, to learn and to be stimulated and to be entertained, and we see these more interactive tools emerging. But then the third area that's an issue is around funding. I mean, we know there's a lot of controversy about funding. Maybe we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And we acknowledge that the funding models of the present need to evolve uh, for both practical reasons as well as for um, ideological reasons. And we hope to use this platform as an opportunity for a very diverse set of constituents to come together and think uh, to think about how the future needs to evolve from a from a funding perspective. And we'll definitely move into that. But let's see what our first caller has to say. Uh, we got Dr. Michael Block on the line from Reno, Nevada. Dr. Block, you're with us? Uh, yes, I am. Thank you very much for taking my call. Feel free. What's your question for us? So I'm an internist uh, with an academic medical center and you know, individually, I've found a way to take part in, in, in CME, both in terms of uh, planning and, and implementation of CME. But our institution, I think, is having trouble figuring out what their role is going to be in CME of the future. So, you know, what do you think is the role of an academic institution in these type of initiatives? Uh, well, I think forward? our view is that in the past, we've had uh, only a limited number of academic institutions really having a, uh, a demand voice in the medical education field, at least continuing medical education. And we think this open initiative will be catalyst to, if you will, open uh, to have a more big tent approach where a more diverse set of organizations can have a voice and play a role. And so what we've seen happen since we've put out our initial news about this initiative is that uh, what we would consider non-traditional academic medical institutions and medical societies have stepped forward and say, how can we be part of the conversation? One of the things in PrimeMed's past that I think is uh, true is we tend to figure it all out and then announce to the world what we're doing. In this case, we, we sort of tried to reverse that and said we have a general set of direction and a general set of principles as to how we think this open model needs to work, but we're going to listen and then design as opposed to the more traditional design and then listen. And we're doing that because we, the, the whole notion here is that we don't have all the answers, that no one has monopoly on genius, and we need a, a big tent approach. And so... I think to answer your question, uh, Dr. Block, is we would uh, hope that organizations that you're affiliated with and others would step forward and reach out to us and say, how can I play a role? And we'll bring those groups together. I expect the outcome will be coalitions will emerge of uh, academic medical or schools, medical societies, uh, leading educators, leading technology firms, public policy experts, practitioners, uh, employers, payers, uh, we see a very diverse set of uh, healthcare stakeholders playing a role in helping to think about the future. Excellent. Well, we got time for one more call. We got Dr. Victor Diaz from Houston, Texas. Dr. Diaz, you're on the line. Yes. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I'm interested in how the continued medical education programs that you're developing would integrate with an electronic medical record, so you have on-demand medical education. As a family practitioner, I sometimes have questions, and then I have to, if I am using an electronic medical record, if there was some way 
that we could integrate the, the, uh, an educational effort while you're seeing patients to fill in some of the blanks we may have during our patient visits. Is there any thought of integrating medical education into, a, uh, into an EMR? So, for example, if you have an EMR and at the end of the visit, it'll review what the physician did and then make suggestions based on, on uh, some kind of intelligent protocol of what the physician did during that visit and what they could do better. Interesting. I think that one of the uh, aspects of medical education that needs to evolve is that we need to move away from episodic interactions uh, in moments where people are in live settings or online to a much closer point-of-care-based approach to the future of medical education. I think, uh, as you point out, electronic medical records are a logical interface, as are potentially other aspects of practice management. And so we would see that the electronic medical record-based firms uh, could emerge as very vital platforms for engagement with new kinds of content partners and new kinds of interactivity. Uh, we've often talked about internally, for example, uh, somewhat euphemistically, as having the PrimeMed button on some of the big electronic medical records. So at that point of care, when it's in context, at the point of need, uh, a person could uh, get exposure to that medical education. And as we know, the, the best way to learn is in, in the most contextually relevant setting, and there's, more, there's no more contextually relevant setting than actually at the point of care, as long as it's an augmentation to, obviously, the patient experience. And so uh, we see that as an important part. We hope that one of the things that will come out of this is a white paper of sorts that will outline not what one firm views as the future of the industry, but what experts, including firms like ours, view as the agenda for the industry. And I have no doubt that a greater point-of-care based programs would be part of that future vision. Well, thank you. Our, our guest today has been Frank Britt, President and CEO of PrimeMed. Frank, thank you for joining us today on Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD. And actually, if you want to know who has a monopoly on genius, it's in our control room. They do. <laughs> thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for being here. Interesting stuff. Well, you know, it's the new world, and you have to go along with changes. I mean, 30 years ago, did I ever think there would be electronic health records? Did I ever think there would be? I'm sitting here with my I iPad. Know, I know. Right Even here. a dinosaur can adapt, right? I, I, I know. <laughs> well, do dinosaurs adapt the best? <laughs> All right. Now that we've covered physician education, let's spend some time talking about the patient perspective, Matt. Over the summer, the Centers for Disease Control released the finding that almost 9 out of 10 adults can't follow routine medical advice because they don't understand it, not because they're stupid. Mm. Uh, it's us, not them. We now have a new government program, the Health Literacy Action Plan, which promotes plain language in medicine. Plain language Hi, in medicine. Hi, you are sick. Yeah, and there's even software you can get now that scans medical forms and finds language that might trip patients up and suggest easier to understand terms. But, I mean, you know, this makes me think that there are some things you really should just never want to say in front of a patient anyway. And I'm not talking about sugarcoating or being patronizing, but terms that are just going to accomplish nothing but confusion. And it sounds so obvious, but I'm amazed how often doctors, PAs, NPs, I mean, you name it, we throw complex terms around at patients, mainly I think mainly just to feel good about ourselves. And I mean, do you see that in practice? I see that all the time. As a matter yeah. of fact, I remember going to an orthopedic surgeon with my daughter when she was young, and he was speaking orthopedic to me. And I had to say, uh, listen, I know I'm a doctor. What language are you speaking? I don't get it. Can you just tell me clearly what's going on? You're an ortho-speak. Yeah, I, I found over the years that you have to find simple, clear ways to say things to patients that they understand. That's part of the skill of being a physician. It's just so important. Otherwise, Patients walk out, they don't know what you said, they're confused, they're angry, they're scared. And really, what's our role? Our role is to 
assuage fear in patients. Mm -hmm. And if you're not speaking clearly, you can't do that. I really think it comes most prominently out when a doctor is facing a situation where they just don't know the answer. But we've been trained and trained and trained. You know, if you're going to get, as they call it, getting pimped all the time, you know, your attitude is, I'm just going to keep on coming up with something. And as opposed to just being able to sit back and say, you know, I really don't know. We will like to use terms or get into this type of thinking, this model of thinking where we just will perseverate all over the place. Perseverate, there's a big um, word. There's a big one right there, which you never want to use in front of a patient, but I'll use it in front of you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, listen, you know, the thing is I teach medical students, and my fourth rule of being a happy doctor is learning to say, I don't know. Yeah. But then you say, but I know how we can find out. You've got to get really comfortable saying, I don't know, because if you do that and you're really humble and honest, patients respect you more than making up some answer they don't understand and confusing them. Yeah. Like every time you ask me a question before the show, I go, I don't know. Yeah. Well, that seems to happen all the time. And every time you ask me a question, I say, you know, it's just idiopathic, you know, <laughs> which, which it, again, one of those words and I you would never think. Me, I think you're calling me an idiot, which is probably true. <laughs> you think it would never come up in practice, but it definitely comes up all the time. People even say that in front of their patients. So, you know, it's idiopathic. Instead of just saying, uh, we don't know. We don't know what cause. And that's what I do. I never use the word idiopathic. I say, patients will always ask me, well, what causes? What did I do? I go, we honestly don't know. For that answer, the chapel's on the other side of the hospital. And <laughs> they get it. When you say things simply to patients, and really, what's our job? To use big words or to make that person sitting across from you feel comfortable, to have them answer their questions, have them walk out. And, you know, in the long run, I think it leads to better patient outcomes. Of Way course better. it does. When better they compliance. understand what's going on. Yeah. Across the table. It's just better compliance, better outcomes, better attitude towards your care. So everybody out there, start speaking simply. Imagine yourself being that patient. And how would you say that? Yeah. Before we wrap up the show, and you know, since we're talking about medical terminology, we want to jump on the other side of this topic and share some neglected terms with you. And <laughs> this is something I've been looking forward to for a while now. The Oxford English Dictionary has put up a very fun-to-play-with website called Save the Words. You go to the site, and you're greeted by an enormous jumble of words on the screen, all up for adoption, all clamoring for your attention, literally. Let's have Tony, our engineer, pull up that site, because I think this is great. What are some of the things that we hear on that site? You got... Jesse! Hello? Hello? <laughs> me! Me! Over here! Over here! Over here! This sounds like my family on Thanksgiving, <laughs> passing the turkey. These are the sounds of words that are literally trying to get your attention to be adopted. Right. There's nothing sadder in the world than a word that uh, is neglected. And, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of words that are so rarely used anymore, they're close to fading from the English language altogether. Most of the time for good reason, but... We scouted around and found a few choice medical terms that we have trouble pronouncing that are in danger. Just in case you never see or hear them again, we'll share a few with you now and we'll use them in sentences, but no promises <laughs> that we won't butcher the pronunciation. Here's a good one. Here's, here's to start with pankymagog, a medicine that purges bodily fluids from the body. And uh, here's a good way to put it. What you need is a good pankymagog, my good sir, to get you back on your feet. Sounds like something somebody worships. I worship pankymagog. <laughs> I give them my firstborn. All right, how about phonime, 
reddening of the skin. I have no idea. Gee, I went out in the sun and I experienced phonime last week. It sounds like something you get arrested for doing with a minor in the backseat of a car. Now, if there's anything I would have expected you to say or to know, it would be phonime. Yeah, we didn't learn that in my derm residency. (laughs) Even yours in the 18th century. Gleamus, slimy, full of phlegm. Like the guy across from me looks gleamus. Mm -hmm. How about cyagonology, the study of jawbones as in flapping them? I thought cyagonology would be the study of Vietnam and its capital. Well, it's a study of jawbones, but only inside. On. Odenometer, an instrument for measuring pain. <laughs> I've got one of those in every room of my house. And this is the best. Mingent, having a full bladder, needing to hit the bathroom stat. So go out to dinner and say, excuse me, folks, I'm mingent. I have to hit the head. Yeah, and try not to have a minge binge if right. you're, while you're at it. How about allegotrophy? Excessive nutrition in one part of the body that leads to a physical deformity. <laughs> like a gut? Hey, there's an allegotrophy going on here. I'm just going to well, go out on a limb and say that that one doesn't listen, exist these are anymore. Clearly <laughs> useful terms, but if you want to save any, you can adopt them. Just don't drop them on your patients because they won't have any idea what we're talking about. Neither do we have any idea what we're talking about, <laughs> neither and will neither you. will you. But hey, if you can slip one of these gems into a morning report or noon conference, or you could become the coolest doc in the room for an hour. Mingent. Everybody remember Mingent. It's the easiest one to remember. I am Mingent. <laughs> I, I'm, I, that Mingent. I'm getting Mingent now, Matt, after the show, and we have to end I just want a patient it. to be able to approach one of us and say, you know, I've been having problems because I feel Mingent all the time. That's you know, <laughs> in the ye oldie timey accent would be my favorite that's as well. Right. <laughs> well, and then, of course, for that, I would prescribe a pancomagogue. And then I would say, but you seem to be gleamous to me. <laughs> Bring really these words back, mentioned. people. Bring the words back. And is just, all we're trying to say. I'll, I'll give you Matt's cell phone number. Just call him in case you really <laughs> forget these words. It's ready and available. And, and if you're going to be throwing a med term at me that I haven't heard since, like, you know, the 19, early 19th century, I'm all for giving How my about an out. award for the, the listener who sends us the best word like this? Just send it to ReachMD. We'll give an on-the-air award for the best new Absolutely. slimy, mingent word. You will be recognized. And SOL with that, at ReachMD.com. <laughs> with that, we're going to leave it there. But remember... We're mingent. If you need someone to prescribe a pancomagog for your gleamous allegotrophy, just give us a call. Thanks to Frank Britt, our guest, and I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. You can find an archive of this show or listen to past episodes of Second Opinion Live at reachmd.com slash SOL. Don't forget to look for us on Twitter. Thank you to everybody in the control room, and hi out there to Heidi. 